This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten, the writer and the narrator of Mindframe, and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Brent Van Tassel, who does all the magic behind the scenes from social media to uh, production and engineering of sound. So thank you for his presence, and thank you for all of your support. We've been having really good reactions to Mindframe. Uh, makes my heart proud to hear people getting into the mystery of it and trying to start solve, solving some of the problems, linking some of the threads together. I promise you it all will come together in what I think is a very compelling and interesting way. So I, I appreciate that you're all joining us on this journey. One way to join us on the journey and be even farther along is to join patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast where you can sign up for different levels and at the five dollar level you can join in and get the sit down episodes every week where myself and brent and zach smith sit down and talk about the current episodes so this week later in the week a sit down episode for chapter 10 will be there we'll talk about it uh, you can listen to the first couple of sit downs for free on the regular feed but that's all there and if you're interested in that or some really cool t-shirts some really cool uh, perks and benefits that you can get including uh, videos that i make where i do some sci-fi reviews and talk about stuff then you can go to patreon.com and track us down also you should know that we are a podbelly original if you're curious in other podcasts whether it's another fiction podcast whether it's just something else to put in your ears or whether you yourself are thinking about podcasting uh, podbelly is the place to go you can go to podbelly.com and find some good information on how to find the right technology the right microphones the right software there's some some how to's on there and you can definitely check it out so Today's episode is chapter 10, which goes back to Grim Bolivar. And where we uh, last left Grim was he was leaving the plaza and he had been manipulated by his niece to go into a bookstore where he was uh, trying to be persuaded to save the life of a young girl named Sophie who was about to be downvoted to some horrible lot in life because she fell in with the wrong crowd. And uh, Elise was trying to convince uh, Graham to go in and make some changes and pull some strings with his brother to make things get changed. And that was kind of where we left off. We also met Penelope, who did some uh, trading to get some art for him. And we started to see what it's like uh, real world in land of 2136 in Southern California. That's where we leave him. So we find him um, as we find him in Chapter 10. So uh, thank you for listening, as always. And I hope you enjoy the chapter. Chapter 10, Grim Bolivar, 2136. Nobody spoke as they left the plaza. Well, Nathaniel did it first, bragging about some bet he made with the boys and won. It dealt with treating the sales staff of a boot shop like shit. As usual, Nathaniel was the shittiest. When nobody in the car sang his praises for being a little monster, he started to pout, realized it wouldn't work, and tapped up some music using his skinter face and zoned out. As they wound through the surface streets heading toward the freeway, Elise sat, staring at Grimm with eyes that tried to bore through to his soul. For a while, he played at staring contest, blinking in intentional rhythms that were just a bit too frequent to be natural. It proved to be disconcerting, and like Nathaniel, Elise finally gave up and looked out the window. She wasn't being petulant or throwing a fit, she merely looked sad, like the world had defeated a small and perfect part of her today. Elise had made promises. She had assumed Uncle Grimm would cave to her administrations and help out this Sophie Arnez. But Elise, like so many others, 
learned that Grim Bolivar was an impossible man to crack. The limo reached the on-ramp and slowed until it was its turn to be hoisted up by the lift. They called it both an on-ramp and a lift, but it was neither. It was a back-engineered design originally beamed down for shipping yards in orbit. There were two dozen metal arms connected to a large chrome orb that stood swaying at about 100 feet as it balanced between whatever arms weren't currently in use. It was a perfect dance of motion and inertia as it connected its arms to large metal plates that the cars parked on. One by one, they were lifted into the air by the metal trunk that always reminded Grimm of the sinuous, creepy motion of a Martian tripod from War of the Worlds. The limo was hoisted up to about 80 feet and placed on the 405 Level 3 South, heading from Inglewood back down to San Pedro. Once merged from the lift to the slow lane, their car finally cruised on the multi-leveled lanes that were so iconic of the hyper-efficient Los Angeles freeway system. At this height, he could see down on the city as if the limo were a flying car. It summoned a humorous conversation about flying cars that his brother Yale started on a recent evening over whiskey. With all the alien tech hurtling across the galaxy, humanity still hadn't achieved the flying car. Once a mainstay of black and white science fiction, it still didn't exist even now that half the world seemed to be sci-fi. Then again, such a car may have been unique to human physiology and probably didn't help with the completion of the Lariat in a meaningful way. Too bad, though. Humanity was due a good flying car. Los Angeles sprawled out before them, tinted to warm colors like a fading picture in the Pacific sun. The towers of downtown loomed in the distance, connected by walkways, the hub of WorldGov for this region of the Americas. Elise moved suddenly and with purpose. She pointed a finger out the window and then swirled it around a bit to indicate she was pointing at the whole scene, not a single place. You can see them all right now, Elise said. The downtrodden. Grim huffed his chest in a short, silent laugh. Let's not get hyperbolic, Elise. She remained silent, and Grim couldn't help but look where she had indicated. Down at the housing and urban neighborhoods that were just off and under the freeway, it was a spiral of houses built in the 2050s as L.A. was remodeled. There were no grids anymore, since they seemed sterile from the freeways. Instead, they were a circular pattern of roads that actually made more logistical sense once drivers got used to them. And it was quite beautiful from this height on the freeway. What do you see when you look down at them, Uncle Grim? Me? Not the downtrodden, that's for sure. I happen to see millions of souls living in this basin. Millions of souls having all their needs met medically, educationally, creatively. Entertainment, plentiful food, clean water, sturdy housing and employment. No, not employment. Meaningful employment. The stuff that the communists used to lament and the capitalists squandered in the wake of Henry Ford. Every hand here turns a wrench in the century-long task of building the ultimate tool. Billions of people for a hundred years, the entire planet's economy and dedication moving to one singular purpose, the Lariat, floating a hundred miles long in orbit of the sun. That's what I see, purpose. Elise replied with a bit too much passion in her voice for a member of the Bolivar House. Is that what you see at the plaza? Maybe most people can't notice it, but you wear it like a hair shirt. Your face falls when you see the workers there, you act like your mouth is full of bile when you talk to the other customers. The plaza is these people. A disdain for that is a disdain for this. 
Again, she pointed at the endless housing of Inglewood as it stretched by. These people are happy, Elise, to a fault, unlike us. Don't mistake happiness for ignorance, she said. Oh, and of what are they ignorant? They're ignorant of what goes on to make the gears of WorldGov seem to turn so efficiently. Grimm asked, Is this a shadow government full of secrets conspiracy argument? Because that I don't buy. This generation of humanity knows more than any previous generation did about their government's actions. The world vote system demands it. We are building the lariat. It tightens, Elise interrupted, spewing deviant propaganda painted under bridges in the secret stillness of night. Grimm started over. We are building the lariat. That's what WorldGov is up to. No great secret, no great conspiracy. If they were up to something nefarious, Yale would have sussed it out, and I'd have been the second to know. They have secrets, of course. They are the unified government of nine billion people. But our house knows those secrets, Elise. There is nothing there but phantasms. So why does the plaza make you come down so hard on the system? Yes, the system works. There's just like this small percentage that are perpetually downvoted, but everyone else seems to live a fulfilled life. But it bothers you. Something about it bothers you, and you need to figure out what it is. The lariat tightens, Grim, or it closes, or whatever. But that gate is going to rip open a hole in space-time in a handful of years, and you need to know, not trust, but know, that its opening is right and the price was worth it. Grim sat back. He looked at the minibar and considered pouring himself a whiskey. But that would look like weakness. Depending on how much Elise's emotions were clouding her perceptions right now, the mere fact that he looked at the bar was the same thing as popping a cork. He was being emotional too, he noticed. This line of questioning was causing him to raise his guard. He wondered why, as a smooth transition took place from the 405L3 South to the 110L2 South. Another orb on legs handled the heavy work for the merger. The view of the housing was gone at this lower altitude. A truck drove past with classical hip-hop booming from a stereo system that must have cost two dozen entertainment chits to afford. The Bolivars probably facilitated that stereo. The plaza. It did bother him. Maybe this conversation was a good thing because he had a sudden realization. The plaza showed the cracks in the middle of WorldGov, the interstitial spaces, the places where Grimm's clan maneuvered. They were made apparent at the plaza. Everyone had enough, but no one had enough. There was enough food to be nourished, but not enough to feed the soul and make you sigh in delight as you slid your chair away from a table. There was enough art to hang up in your house to keep the plaster in your walls from yawning at you, but not enough to make you want to weep. At every level, the world could sustain enough to keep you going, but there was no gluttony, no deep satisfaction. There was music, but not Mozart's Requiem. Those were essential parts of the human condition. I get that there are imperfections, Elise. One man works hard to swap an education shit for better clothes, and the upper strata always benefits. We always benefit. We are rich, Elise, even though that is thought to be vulgar. Maybe it's guilt, I feel, at the plaza. Elise was still ablaze. As she spoke, she leaned forward, her pupils dilated in a chemical soup that she couldn't hide from him. It's more than chits. People who are constantly upvoted have more sway over those under them. The votes themselves become an invisible currency. 
If someone at the plaza offended the wrong person, the downvotes would cascade not just from one naval officer, but from everyone under his command. The network monitors would lock the downvotes relatively quickly to stop complete social ruin, but not quickly enough to do damage. And the workers at the plaza only served the upper crust, the sheriffs, the advocates, the officers from the sky and the ground. And you can tell me that the percentage of people who use downvotes to be shitty or cause malice is remarkably small. The system is as close to perfect as any government or economy ever has been. But you don't accept perfection. Nobody in the Bolivar house can. Where are the flaws? What are the exploits? How wide are the loopholes? You see the skin of the thing, Uncle Grimm, pimples and all. Now it was Grimm's turn to be silent. He knew that his silence would hide his heart more than any comment would have, since his emotions were up. Elise was winning this argument. But in the constant game of chess that was Bolivar House politics, he couldn't let her know exactly to what extent she was winning. His father's voice sprang to life in his head. Even where there is no wealth, wealth will accrue. His father would say this with a shrug to justify how the fifth houses manipulated the system. Yale always knew that in the core of his being, supported it with gusto. That's why he ran the family after his father's passing. It was a thing that Grimm, cruising down the 110, realized he never believed. He sat on the patio, a heavy fisherman's sweater hugging his chest and his hand hugging a single malt older than either of his nephews. He meant to check in with Reese when he got back home, but Grimm was too upset. Grimm didn't visit that boy when emotions were heavy on him or his nephew knew, and it agitated his already precarious state. He'd writhe in his bed as if the emotions were things he could see with his catatonic eyes or fingernails scratching at his skin so sensitive from frequent bed sores, forever staring at nothing. Grimm would go in the morning and show him the new painting, whether he could perceive it or not. Instead, he lay back on a damp Adirondack chair and the salty wind caught his hair and set it to wild flights of its own imagination. The sky was especially active tonight, the WorldGov weather tech doing its thing to keep the San Fernando Valley enshrouded in fog, cold, and rain. The mist that sprayed up the cliff's side was almost dense enough to be visible, even in the night. The moon was a thin splinter in the sky, which meant its shipyards and oxygen mines could be seen up there in the dark part of Luna, glowing as if new stars suddenly gentrified a rare black spot of the heavens. The whiskey was smoky, too smoky for his usual tastes, but it hinted at warmth, at a fire and loved ones to sit beside. But tonight, he was alone, just the sea and moon and mist. A party could be heard, or something raucous, a few floors down. His brother, certainly, was entertaining important people. That smug prick of a captain he met earlier was probably there, smoking cigars from Cuba devouring animal life secretly pulled from the sea, and rubbing up on Yale's girls. All of it was forbidden by WorldGov, but the sheriff's legal vision became myopic when it came to enforcing the Bolivar family. As a fifth house, the Bolivars provided cigars to smoke, fine food to eat, and ladies to be rubbed up on. In a world with no economy and no supply or demand, they made sure everyone got what they wanted at least for the Americas, which was their exclusive turf. Somehow their house was always ahead. They could always predict trends, 
always outthink WorldGov and were the undisputed power of all the fifth houses. Grimm said, Hey, Prospect? A quick and classy trumpet note sounded to let Grimm know that Prospect was now actively listening. Play me something beautiful. Can you give me any more details, Graham? Prospect asked in its typical voice, a smooth North American accent that hinted at English, even though it spoke basic, as did everyone else in these parts. Something tragic, powerful, something I can drink smoky scotch whiskey and watch the waves to. I've got just the thing in mind. Prospect started a piece that at first made Grimm think it had failed to boot, but as the notes wafted over the patio and were swallowed by the sea, Grimm realized it was Mozart's Requiem. Prospect, as always, was smart enough to read Grimm's mind. Woodwinds first, flirting with his ears and merging with the sea spray as if they were crafted of the same gossamer stuff. Then the horns in a swell, crashed like the waves, joined by the voices speaking an old tongue. Austrian, maybe, or Latin. Something dead, or reduced now to the academic, anyway. Grimm often listened to old opera and thought he was better for not understanding the vocabulary, just the voice and how it married to the strings. No meaning for him to deconstruct. A syllable only had as much meaning as a drumbeat. Maybe it was better that way. Prospect always selected the perfect music for the perfect moment. This, too, was his father's favorite piece, its power undeniable, its lament unsurmountable. Graham wondered how something could be so sustainably tragic to the human ear for four and a half centuries. He wondered if some future humanity would no longer be moved by Mozart. He wondered if the things living on the other side of the lariat would weep when they heard it live for the first time, as he himself did at a concert hall when he was a teen. Or would they just hear a drawer full of spoons dropping down a set of basement stairs with their alien ears? Or would they have ears? Some in the biopedia did not. A boat sailed by, identified only by lights blinking atop a mast. It was leaving the bay and Grimm wanted to be on it. Going somewhere, away from the party downstairs and the life he lived, the privilege he was afforded, the laws, both societal and criminal, he could break without repercussion. He was trapped in the opportunity that only a few thousand people on the planet could know. He drank good wine, ate good food, had a private car, could visit outer space without being in the World Navy. All of it, whenever he wanted. But he didn't want. He didn't want any of it. He was bound to do his duty for the family. He vowed to keep their legacy and power consolidated. But he had no taste for it. Not after what happened in Italy. Now they'd send girls up to his rooms, whiskey, antique watches, rare books, the Bolivar family wanted to remind Grimm he was one of theirs, that what they did mattered, that it yielded a return for all of humanity. Elise was right, though. He questioned WorldGov. He always had. But at the same time, WorldGov dogma was ingrained in him. For example, he felt injustice at having more than the rest of the species did. He was repulsed at the thought of eating sea life as Yale often did as the ultimate taboo with his guests. He felt the wealth and power accumulated by his family, and he thought it should be spread, that the shopkeepers at the plaza should get a taste of this life. Maybe there shouldn't be peaks and valleys. Maybe everyone should have exactly what everyone else has. But he could share none of these sentiments with his family. 
and WorldGov simply was crooked. Was it less crooked than virtually any government in the past? Absolutely. But when you sat in the house that ran the corruption, every minor blemish was a third-degree burn scar. Of the entire house, only Elise felt this way, and far more deeply than Grimm did. She was more grim than Grimm, as his aunt used to say. Elise wanted to help people, the people WorldGov used up in their plans for the Lariat and their ships and everything else just to open a gate and be part of an even larger, possibly more uncaring galactic government. She held that human beings right here on Earth were suffering. Was it worth it, the gifts sent from messengers, for so many to go without, to suffer and toil and build? Was a future paradise worth a present-day purgatory? Grimm didn't know. And he didn't poke holes or ask such things out loud. That was deviant rhetoric. The whip and sting of Poseidon's cold barbs pulled Grimm from his philosophic musings straight down the bottom of Maslow's pyramid. He was cold and needed shelter. His face burned and fingers had gone from feeling that his whiskey glass was cold to not feeling the glass at all. Grimm dumped the last of the scotch over the railing of the balcony. As if on cue, horns joined the voices and strings in the requiem as his drink joined the sea mist, two elemental forces marrying and sweeping over the lavish patios of Prospect. Prospect wasn't technically a house. It was a distribution hub for goods not native to the district. But the Bolivers found loopholes, always loopholes, that let the family live at Prospect. While the four branches of WorldGov kept everyone focused on the Lariat, kept everyone's basic necessities met, humans still had preferences. One person may be willing to trade his fuel chits for fine food chits, and another may wish to trade clothing for travel. Transactions and trade had to occur to keep everyone happy. And the Bolivers created and ran a trading hub that ran from Alaska to Antarctic and Chile. They were typically small remainders left in these transactions. However, a stray alcohol ration here and a housing ration there and the Bolivers and the other fifth houses kept the remainders for their role in organizing the trade. They were called fifth houses because they were the unofficial fifth spoke of WorldGov alongside the commodores, sheriffs, advocates, and messengers. Five such houses existed and ran the trade of all commodities on the planet and up through space, and the houses were wealthy beyond imagine. They were, according to some, the only wealth left on Earth. According to WorldGov's official rhetoric, though, there was no wealth. The sins of capital had been banished to the tragic pages of a history rife with greed and plunder. One world government, one world economy, one world power, one world vote. A raising of the global economic and political system. That's what it took to build the Lariat. A concession the planet had to agree to before the messengers would send the plans for the Lariat down. The Lariat. This thing that took over a hundred years of combined effort on the part of every sentient being on Earth was actually a side effect of the first global election. The planet had really voted for clean water and abundant food, for warm clothing and an end to malaria and cancer, the stop to warlords and genocide. After the World Vote War, the World Vote was tallied. Wealth was redistributed so everyone got an even slice of it. This was a miraculous upgrade of the standard of living for most people of Earth's population, 
but it was an academic devastation to countries like the United States, the UK, and Japan. Not that the war hadn't destroyed enough. Even the dolphins, who the messengers said were sentient beings, got ballots in the world vote. They were thrilled about it, apparently. Early on, humans scoffed at the dolphins being sentient and getting a fair vote and a share of the Earth's resources. But when the aquatic animals first flew from the sea in vehicles they had created, everyone on the surface changed their minds about them. They had almost 20 times the number of framers by population than humans had, but only a sliver of the headcount. It was undeniable that dolphins were intelligent. It was equally undeniable they weren't human. An alien intelligence right here on Mother Earth. And for most Earthlings, human or dolphin, things were fine. Grimm had to admit this, had to remind himself of it. The world was great. The global standard of living was higher than it had been in all of human history. Most nations had old slums elevated to suburbs. Universities were built in the rubble of one-time warlord compounds. Africa, China, India, South America, everywhere. Cities flourished and children were plump and happy. But in the old United States, there were once great towns that crumbled since the resources weren't allocated by the world vote to keep them up. The whole world was forced by world vote to meet somewhere in the middle, and this meant most of the U.S. had pretty hard to fall. Grimm stood on the patio, staring into the dark fury of the ocean. A light from downstairs cast a yellow glow on the rocks below. Distorted shadows of human figures danced on the rocks of the cliff. Grimm's wrist tickled, and he looked down to see a little ringing bell icon in his freckles. Someone was at the door. Elise or Yale? Join my way of thinking, if Elise. Join the party and meet some important new guests, if Yale. A guilt trip, either way. No one else would bother him at this hour. The family knew to leave him alone, lest they felt his wrath, when he retreated up into what they called his tower at night to be alone with his thought and his books. He went inside, and the glass melted shut behind him, sealing off the roar of the ocean. Prospect adjusted the music volume as the ocean fell silent behind him. Grimm opened the door, and instead of his niece or brother, there stood a member of the kitchen staff. A new one. The staff at Prospect was comprised of two types. Secret prostitutes, gorgeous young women and men who did menial tasks by day and pleasured the admin and military officers by night, and the rescues, the people who were eaten up by WorldGov and were then brought here for a chance at employment that would eventually lead to upvotes that helped them set their lives on the right path. Typically, Elise hired the rescues. Yale allowed it because it kept the Bolivar house in favor with the typical citizens on the street. This kitchen staffer wore the classic white chef's coat and smiled, bowing her head a bit, not sure what to do with her eyes. Evening, Grimm said. Evening, sir. Sorry to disturb you. Your niece said I should come in and take your tray. So it was his niece at the door after all. Graham, he introduced himself. Beth. She dipped her head when she said it, as if her own identity was an intrusion here amongst the music and whiskey. Beth walked to the dining area and put the dirty dishes on a tray. She went over to the kitchen counter and grabbed the whiskey glass where Grimm had just set it as well. Beth was skinny, unhealthily so. Her skin was slightly jaundiced and her muscles were clearly defined, not because she was in good shape, 
but because there was no layer of fat to protect them. Beth's was a life with no margins. Her face was a sketch, the outline of a face that could be pretty if not so skinny. Her eyes were recessed, and her teeth crooked and stained. Her hair, in a bun, could do little else. It had no body or shine. It wasn't blonde so much as the color of paste. Grim thought she was in her mid-thirties and had been through hell. At some point, she had been downvoted to a bad work detail in a camp somewhere, and Elise must have hired her very recently, lest she would look much better by now. Is there anything else I can get you, sir? Beth asked. Her accent was one rich with the nasal intonations and intense diphthongs of American English. Standard was a second language to her. She wouldn't look at Grimm, afraid of what he'd do perhaps, or afraid of how he'd react to her threadbare image. She was a downvote personified. Most of humanity wouldn't know her suffering. No thank you, Beth. Good to meet you. Beth took the tray, one more load to carry, and made her way to the door of Grimm's flat. She didn't quite have a limp, but a drag. Something was wrong with her foot. Grimm opened the door for her and said goodnight. He shut the door and leaned his forehead against it. His phone rang within seconds. He looked at his wrist, and his pigment had made a rudimentary picture of Elise. He stared at it long enough for it to know, and the phone picked up. Elise said, She's only 24. Look, Elise, I'm tired and I'm not. She's only 24. She was labeled a deviant co-conspirator because her older brother was a deviant. Once her brother's proceedings were made public record, her entire family was downvoted. She was 16 at the time, old enough for the vocational dorms, and that's what the wisdom of World Vote decided for her. She spent three years on the moon cracking rock for oxygen. She spent some time in Atlantis working in dense water pressure to forge rare messenger metals. She has no education, no future, and will never be a citizen, never be healthy or happy unless we, the Bolivar family, allow it. Nobody else will help her. No administrator will ever care, and she will never be given a chance to make a difference to the world or get the smallest upvote. No branch of the military will accept her. Menial labor until she dies. She has a broken foot that didn't heal right and some lung damage from chemical exposure. She's only four years older than me, and she's a scarecrow. When she went away, she was the same age as Reese is now. Beth is smart, and she's a really good cook. She can make amazing food out of bare ingredients because she had to. If she could have ever gone to an academy, she could have been a great chef somewhere. All she needed was a permit, Elise said. Then again, all she needed was a permit. She hung up. Grim put on his housecoat. He shut down the music and breathed in the silence of his rooms, sucked up the darkness there, and walked into the light of the eternal party raging downstairs. That was where he'd find Yale, and that was where he'd get Sophie Arnez her permit. So what will happen when he does find Yale? You'll have to tune in on the next character arc for Grim Bolivar in order to find out. As always, we want to thank uh, Zach Smith uh, for doing the sit-down episodes, and you can find all of his books that range from 
from horror to everything you can imagine. Uh, and you can find his books on mindframepodcast.com, as well as my uh, first book in the re-released form, 181 Pine. Totally different sci-fi world, totally different premise, but it's still there. It's the beginning of the trilogy that is uh, being re-released by my new publisher. Also on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at The Mindframe Podcast. You can find us at Twitter at The Mindframe Pod. And you can find us on Reddit at r slash Mindframe Podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the show, and it is worth repeating, you can definitely check things out at podbelly.com. There's a really cool list of shows that you can listen to. Whatever your flavor is, there's stuff there. There's educational content. There's humorous content. There's a lot of horror, there's a lot of uh, supernatural stuff, but it's all there. And if you're into podcasts, you can definitely find something on the directory. And if you yourself have a podcast, you can uh, apply to be posted there. And uh, the great people at Podbelly will, will give it a listen. So two of the shows that we do recommend are Robots for Eyes, which you can check out, and also The Madman's Note. So those are two Podbelly podcasts that you can listen to. Also, if you like the sound of my voice and of Brent's voice, you can join us over on the Sofa King podcast, which is the podcast that sort of launched our other podcast ventures. It is most definitely not safe for work, and in it we do a comical take on research about everything from serial killers to conspiracy theories to people of interest. But uh, our listeners post a topic, and we research it and then talk about it with a whole lot of off-color jokes, and we laugh a lot and drink whiskey. And our, our third triumvirate member is Brad Taylor. And if you like Magic the Gathering, you can also go to Brewing the 99, which is Brad Taylor's Magic the Gathering podcast, so you can check that out as well. So, as always, thank you for the support, thank you for the listen, and remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>